So when James said this morning at uh, the close of uh, that sit that we did together, that um, reminding us that it was Thanksgiving and that the Thanksgiving schedule would be different, and saying there's really no better place to be than here. Uh, I thought about how many levels that is true on. And um, I think in the moment he may have been um, connecting and particularly reminding those of you who have been with us for Thanksgivings before that there's a tradition of uh, eating an especially elaborate meal and it's lovely to eat it together. And so there was a level, I think, on which he was saying it's really very, very pleasant to have a festive and celebratory meal with friends. But I was thinking on another level that that's uh, really a very deep dharma, that there's no better place to be than here, ever. And that uh, this, that that particular line could be both the instructions uh, for practice and uh, the promise of practice, that the instruction for practice is to dwell, really, as peacefully as we can in the truth of the moment, all the time. And the promise of the practice and the goal of the practice, the discovery of the practice, is that we can. And that really the truth of our discovery is that we can do our lives, we can live these lives, uh, challenged as they all are, by degrees of challenge. Not everyone's life is the same. Each of us come into unique circumstances and are presented with unique circumstances. But the great discovery that we can not only live our life awake and alive in it, but that we can respond with kindness and compassion, can even celebrate, that really this is uh, on behalf of being able to be fully awake in our lives. I thought about the fact that uh, I heard on the radio the other day that yesterday was the biggest travel day in the whole year. More people travel on the day before Thanksgiving than any other day. And they're all going home. And I thought, we are too. But we don't have to get on a plane. (laughs) That we are just doing it here. And we are actually going home to that home which is our birthright of a peaceful, awake, alert, responsive heart. I've been saving a cartoon all week, and uh, it's been like a koan, because I read it for the first time a week or so ago, um, took it out of the New Yorker, and I thought I would tell this cartoon on Thanksgiving. And it's been changing in its meaning all week long. And I could probably do a whole hour on this cartoon. Maybe we'll put it, I'll put it on the bulletin board later. and You can do your own elaborate koan study on it. But it's a board meeting, a bunch of people in suits in a big metropolis. You can see that out the window, skyscrapers. And uh, so folks in suits sitting around a table and the... uh, leader of the board, the chairman of the board, person at the head of the table, is saying, we've agreed then to deck the halls 
but the resolution to be jolly has been tabled. <laughs> so I thought about the particular way in which, uh, the particularly unique way in which we celebrate, where we do it in this quiet way. We deck the halls, we celebrate, but there's something, the, the current unfolding of that koan for me, at least at this moment, is that we're not jolly in the sense of pretense jolly or extra jolly or pretending that we're happier than we are, which is often one of the burdens of this holiday season, is the sense that we have to be happier, more pleased with our lives than we actually are. Frequently people say to me in January, thank goodness that's all over. Don't have to pretend to be so pleased anymore. (laughs) That actually what we are exchanging for a pretense of jolly is the truth of genuine happy. And I think that genuine happiness is really the gift and the potential of this practice. I trust that that's so. There was a, a new book, I think it's Mark Epstein's new book recently, has an introduction by the Dalai Lama. And the first sentence of the introduction is, the purpose of life is to be happy. And I was surprised. I thought it would say, given that it's the Dalai Lama and he is tirelessly working, not only on behalf of Tibetans and on behalf of Buddhism, but on behalf of world peace, that he would say the purpose of life is to serve. And yet he said the purpose of life is to be happy. It's quite clear from looking at his life and the rest of that introduction, that really the path to happiness is the path of service that comes from genuine compassion, which comes from seeing clearly, which comes from looking deeply, which comes from dwelling in a balanced way in the truth of our lives, moment to moment, which is what we're doing, which is why we're in the right place at the right time. And it's a great gift for all of us that the Dharma has come into our lives. When we do this practice of attempting to dwell, and sometimes dwelling peacefully in the truth of our lives, we get to see quite clearly two very important truths. We get to see three, actually. We get to see how everything comes and goes, which I think helps us to live with the second of the three great truths that we see, which is the truth of the great, ubiquitous quality of suffering. The fact that suffering is built in to the condition of having taken form and taken life. Which, if we see very deeply, leads us really to the place of compassion. And we get to see as well the truth of the interconnectedness of all experience. And when we get to see that, we really understand the extraordinary way in which Everything is connected to everything else. We begin to understand that it's a lawful cosmos, one that one can trust. We get to see with a quality of radical amazement that gives an excitement to being part of life, that sustains us in our view of suffering, I think, and which allows us to recognize that although the infinite web of karmic interconnections is enormous, 
that every single act matters and that we matter and what we do and what we think and what we intend matter and our lives become valuable and everyone's life becomes valuable. And so I think that even though if someone were to look from another vantage point at us celebrating Thanksgiving, especially maybe they look at us at the, at the lunch table and they see that everybody is sitting very quietly, they would not know what a passionate practice this was. Might think it was odd, as a matter of fact. They might think it was grim. It's the least grim and the most passionate practice I know. It's actually the determined practice of transformation of the heart to compassion and kindness and service and happiness in a most straightforward way. Think about the way in which this week all of you have seen the truth of suffering in one way or another. We see, for some people, these are difficult times in their life, and they are really the great sufferings of life, of the uh, sickness, or possible loss of people, or things that we care about, the people in our lives, the dreams in our life. I think all of them matter. I was going to make a hierarchy, but it's painful to realize that a dream isn't going to work, that we really wanted to have work that someone that we love might not be available to us. To be able to discover that we have the capacity to recognize and tell the truth about pain and still be here for the next minute and to be here with less suffering than before we told the truth. I had a friend who died uh, um, a couple of decades ago now she was young, she was in her 40s, and had a family and a career, and she had cancer, and she did everything she could not to die. And um, then she was clearly losing her fight against that disease. and She had a really very spacious, uh, non-adversarial uh, connection with the fact that she was dying. She really didn't want to die. She saw that it was happening. She was talking to me one day about the fact that she had done so much in the way of emotional growth as a result of her having been ill, having finished the pieces of her life that she hadn't quite finished and made amends with all the people that she hadn't made amends with. And she said, I've grown enormously from my illness, she said. But you know, the truth is, I would have rather not had the illness and rather not grown. And I think that's true for all of us. Given a choice, we just as well have the kind of fortunate karma where we learn slowly and on less difficult homework. Bill Kwong is the uh, Zen Roshi at Sonoma, Sonoma Zen Center. And uh, he came to visit at a retreat that I was sitting at some years ago. And he was a guest for the afternoon and led a sitting. And uh, uh, afterwards, he said, I don't want to give a talk, but I'll answer questions. And people asked um, Dharma questions. What is Kensho? Uh, what is enlightenment? And 
they gave answers and then somebody said, um, I heard you had cancer. How was that? And I had known that uh, Bill had had cancer, but, uh, and that now he was apparently better from it. But I thought, whoa, I thought people were going to ask Dharma questions. It was a Dharma question, actually, and I wondered how he would deal with it. And the public announcement of, I heard you had cancer, how was it? And he thought for a minute, and he said, it was terrible. It was really terrible. Said it just about like that. And then he talked about something else, how, perhaps how he got better, or how glad he was to be better. But it was such a relief to me that he didn't say, my great realization that all things come and go helped me be present to the truth of my experience, and I sailed right over it or right under it. He said, it was terrible. It was really terrible. And then something else. It's very important learning for me at that time. So there's a lot of huge suffering, that the big sufferings of losses. And when we get to be here, we get to see the everyday, small, recurrent sufferings of our own minds, even when we're not facing a very impending great challenge in our lives. Just the challenge of even being here in a reasonably benign environment. It's pleasant here. And yet everybody has storms inside of them in response to what's happening. Somebody faxed me a prayer of thanksgiving yesterday. It says, I want to thank you, Lord, for being close to me so far this day. With your help, I haven't been grumpy, judgmental, or envious of anyone. But I will be getting out of bed in a minute. And I... (laughs) And I think I will really need your help then. It's extremely hard to be in a non-adversarial relationship with life. Never mind the big stuff, the small stuff. It's actually extremely hard to be anything but compassionate. That's really the only easy thing to be. I had a lesson coming back from uh, um, Boston a couple of weeks ago. I I had been back east teaching for a couple of weeks and I got on a flight to come back to San Francisco. And I really had had a very intense schedule for several weeks, and I was so happy to get on a plane. Didn't want to do anything on the plane. Didn't want to have the movie. Very happy to be alone. Didn't want to talk. I think I perhaps I had a newspaper. Even that was a lot. Read the newspaper, and they brought the lunch, and I put away the newspaper, and I was eating my lunch and looking around. And on the other side of the aisle, I could see a man who was also eating his lunch, and uh, the new airplanes have uh, those little uh, televisions right in front of you, so you don't have to crane your neck and look around and see the screen up there. They're right in the seat in front of you. So his television is on, he's eating his lunch, and the television is playing. And I see he has uh, different kind of earphones, and sometimes you can bring your own earphones and plug into the video, but I see that his earphones are plugged into a cassette player. So he's probably playing some music and eating his lunch and watching the movie. And 
he's got a paperback novel open in this hand. And he's looking at the novel and looking at the movie and eating the lunch and listening to the CD. And I'm just kind of sitting there. And I had been sitting there enjoying just sitting there. And I looked at him. And just for a moment, because I like cartoons so much, and uh, my friends know that I collect cartoons, I like them, I tend to draw cartoons in my mind. And I saw this man sitting and all these things happening, and I thought, well, if there's a next square on this cartoon, he will have exploded. <laughs> that there just will be so many things coming into him that he will have exploded. And the cartoon just so tickled me that I laughed out loud. So here I am sitting and eating my lunch, looking at nothing, and all of a sudden I do ha ha ha. And, and I think I must have startled the person next to me, and then I felt embarrassed that what must this person next to me think? Here's this older woman sitting and eating her lunch all of a sudden out of the blue. Ha ha ha. So I felt embarrassed a little bit. And I felt a little uncomfortable about the embarrassment. And then I looked back at this man, and I realized that maybe I had drawn the cartoon, partly because I, I tend to cartoon and I have a capricious mind, and, but maybe partly to ignore the fact that the, he had all those things on meant that he had some degree of suffering going on and that there wasn't enough with any one of those orifices of satisfaction to satisfy him. Had things going in his mouth and his eyes and his ears and reading a book at the same time. I was reminded of hungry ghost realms where you can't eat enough to keep comfortable. Where you just can't make yourself comfortable. And so I thought to myself, maybe he's frightened of flying in an airplane. He has to do everything possible to divert himself. Maybe he's just frightened in his life and can't get comfortable in his life. And then I actually felt sad for him and somewhat, I hope, compassionate. And I felt better. Felt better to be compassionate about him, make some prayers of metta for him about, hope you feel all right. It felt better than feeling smug about I'm just sitting here quietly and you're putting in all this stuff. Smug doesn't feel good. Compassionate feels much better. Actually, it's a surprise to me to discover, I keep discovering it, that um, when I I first heard uh, about bodhisattva vows, about great (coughs) compassion, compassion for all beings, I thought, that's too hard. And actually, I think the secret is It's the easiest way to be happy. And I think that connects to the realization that we all hope to have, as well as seeing the suffering in our own lives and the suffering around us, of the way in which every life is interconnected. Everything makes a difference. There's a way in which when we discover the way every experience is conditioned by something else, just as you are now. You see that a thought makes a feeling, makes an emotion, brings back a string of memories, or a thought brings another thought, brings a string of memories, brings um, 
an emotional wave makes a body response, makes a whole projected story. We see how every, every event conditions something else. Everything makes a result. It's amazing. Kind of awesomeness about that. And that every single thing that we do, in a sense, is conditioned by everything that's ever happened. You know, sometimes we think about miracles. Yesterday in my class, down in the lower meadow hall, people were talking about how pleased they were to have this practice. And people were telling stories about how they got here. That I met so-and-so who told me about this and that, who led me to so-and-so, and now I'm here. And sometimes it's a long trail of getting here, sometimes it's a short trail. And everybody said, but you know, if I hadn't met so-and-so, maybe that wouldn't happen. I'm so glad I met so-and-so. But then you think, well, it might not have happened, but maybe we would have met somebody else. You know, we don't know really. A couple of uh, weeks ago, I was uh, leaving um, the house where I stay in Kentfield when I'm down here in Marin and uh, going into San Francisco. And I really had my hand on the doorknob. I was about to leave. And my phone rang. And I thought, well, I could let the phone machine pick it up, or I could pick it up. And I'm actually a little bit late, but I picked it up. And uh, I said, this is Sylvia. And someone said, oh, I can't believe I've really gotten you. I really, I was expecting a machine. And the point of, the, the reason that call was it was a person I didn't know at all who uh, I, perhaps had heard me teach. I'm not actually even sure of the connection. But she said, I just have this thing going on in my life right now, and I thought you'd be the one to talk about it. Have you got a minute? So it took really a couple of minutes, that's all. Finished, she said, oh, I'm so happy you were there. I was happy I was there, too. And that was it. I don't remember the person's name. I don't remember the circumstances. I just remember that that happened. And I felt good. And then I drove to San Francisco, and I was going over the bridge. And I just came over the bridge, and they were clearing up an accident, a tent starting to clear up an accident that had just happened. And I thought, oh, uh, had I not answered, it's good that I answered that phone call, I thought, because had I not, I would have been here five minutes earlier, right when that accident was happening. Then I made the extra story that, Gil pointed out so well uh, the other night in his talk of assuming that this and this and this event means this or is caused by that. I said, you see, I said to myself, see, I did that good thing and therefore wasn't in that accident. I said, and, and then I realized afterwards, those are two completely separate events. On any other day, I might have been taking a shower and missed an accident. Every single day, I miss every accident that happens in the whole world. That's really true. Every day that I am still here, I have missed every accident that's in the whole world. To imagine that it's the particular action that I did just prior to that, which conditions it, and does not take into consideration how other people drive or other people, is to make myself the center of the whole world. And it's not, I think, a correct point of view. It makes too much responsibility on myself. And then I can take too much praise and too much uh, merit. I think no one is responsible, and it's everyone's merit. 
And every single day, the fact that we have our karma is such in that day that we miss an accident, either proximally or distally, is another amazing day in which the karma of the whole world worked out, that we hear another day in which to be present and in which to serve. It's an amazingly thrilling place. What I came to realize after that is not that the phone call didn't matter. The phone call matters, but it matters with or without the accident on the bridge. Every act matters, and you don't know how. A couple of weeks ago, I um, it's a, an act of, it's a 30-second act, five-second event. I went to supper late, late one night in a restaurant with a friend of mine here in Marin. I was washing my hands in the ladies' room and looking in the mirror as one does, and there's someone washing right next to me. And uh, her hair was all uh, pulled up in a tight bun. And as I was washing, she put her, uh, um, took, a, I guess, hairpins out of this bun and shook her hair out and came out this great and extraordinary big hair kind of like Farrah Fawcett hair, very beautiful hair. It was sort of surprising, because I hadn't imagined it. And quite impulsively and sincerely, I said, oh, you have very beautiful hair. I've always loved that kind of hair. And she looked startled, and she said, "Um, well, if he makes you feel any better, I'm not happy. And then, and she left. It's a hugely important Dharma story, and I've told it all over the place. And it keeps unfolding as a koan, and this is why. In the moment, I felt a little miffed, you know? Do I look like the sort of person that would feel better to know that she's unhappy? You know, I have a kind face, and so I could get a little miffed about that. And uh, then I thought, okay, deal with that myth. Then I thought, well, it's a good Dharma story. Beautiful hair does not make you happy. Nothing actually makes you happy except a peaceful heart. So I thought, okay, I learned something, and I left the ladies' room, and I went back to my friend Martha, with whom I was having dinner. And then I told Martha that story. And then Martha got vicariously miffed on my behalf. (laughs) It's not so nice for that person to say that towards you. Then I thought, you know, Martha... I don't know. I have no idea what the mind space into which I really made a quite impulsive and I think good-spirited remark. I don't know if five minutes before that person was having dinner with someone who's been their partner for a long time who said, I'm not in love with you anymore. I don't know whether five minutes before that person, after having uh, been sober for 12 years, and just had a glass of wine. I don't know whether that person lost their job that day. I don't know the mind in which, into which I was. So I thought about it. So as a matter of fact, at that time, I thought, oh dear. And I looked around the restaurant, and I thought maybe I could find her, and I could go apologize. And that obviously would be very awkward, and I wouldn't do that. And besides, I didn't see her. So the only thing I could do was an internal amends. I could think, 
wherever you are, I make a prayer that your suffering be lessened and do metta, whatever it is, may you be at ease. And then may I be at ease as well for having unknowingly intruded on a delicate space and perhaps hurt your feelings. And I went around in the weeks after that, and wherever I taught, I told it in this class or that class, and people had ways that they would do further interpretations. It's kind of a good teaching story. And uh, because obviously I said that the the moral of that story is not that you shouldn't talk to people in public restrooms, or (laughs) that you shouldn't tell people their hair looks good if it does, or you shouldn't feel spontaneously able to say something complimentary. I think the moral of the story is you never know, really, even if your intention is good, how your act falls, so that we can intend well, and then if it's not correct, we can pray or plan or hope that it be corrected and that we make amends in some way. And then someone said to me, after I told the story in some classes, and I felt content enough with it. Somebody said, you know, I think you've left out a piece that you don't know either that three months from now that very woman is in a place not so vulnerable as today and standing in front of a mirror and brushing her hair and looking at herself and says to herself then, you know, I have really nice hair. I have beautiful hair. Somebody once said that to me, a person I don't know at all, told me that in a ladies' room somewhere. And that maybe at that time, it'll be something that she can feel good about in her life, something to make her feel happy. So that the fact that I put that into the universe, maybe it'll be useful at some time. So I've been thinking that when we do metta together, and we put into the universe good thoughts for the well-being of people. It's a practice in that. It's a practice in thinking about the way that we, all of us, share a life wanting so much to be happy and peaceful, challenged by the big losses of our life, and challenged all the time by all the things that challenge peace of mind. I think about the little signs they used to have in rural townships where there was an ordinance against disturbing the peace. I mean, we can't have an ordinance in our life against disturbing the peace in our minds and in our bodies because it's constantly a possibility for the peace to get disturbed. But that we could return to a place of peace and wish that genuinely for everybody we love. I think about the things that people will be grateful for today and say that they are grateful for. I am so grateful for this practice of reestablishing the peace in our hearts that's our birthright, of coming home to that peace all the time, not just on certain days of the year. Telling the truth of our lives, including all the suffering. Telling the truth when we feel contrite, making amends so we feel better. Telling the truth about other people's suffering and then responding with compassion. Sometimes people say, I'm worried that I'll get too vulnerable. I don't think there's such a thing as too vulnerable. I think vulnerable is good. 
think it's actually through seeing deeply the truth of suffering that we get to be compassionate towards other people and that we can't help but being compassionate to ourselves as well. So you do remember last night when we did a metta together, we did a visualization. Most of you were here, but for the people who weren't here, we did a visualization where each of us closed our eyes and we imagined ourselves in the middle of a big circle. And we imagined that in front of us were our mother and father. Sometimes when people first hear this practice, they have a momentary flurry because not everybody's experience with their mother and their father was a happy one. And I loved when I first heard the teaching of uh, this particular teaching of putting your mother and father right in front because but for your mother and father, regardless of your experience with them, you couldn't be here. So to acknowledge them as the source of your life and actually through them, their parents and their parents and all of those parents all the way back to the beginning of time who actually had to meet each other all the way back to the very beginning of time in order for you to be here in the middle of the circle. So here are your parents and around them are all of the people that are near in your family and near to your heart. So when I close my eyes, I see my husband and my children and their whole families. And then as we sat and we brought into that circle all of our uh, close friends, and people that we work with, people that we know, have the sense visually that all of those people are around us and that those behind them are the people that we know a little less well and a little less well and a little less well. And all the way around, 360 degrees, all the way around the world. And we're in the middle of that center. And we even included in that whole visualization the fact that somewhere in that whole crowd of people stretching from here all the way around the world are some of those folks that we've had some difficulties with. We really would like to put in the back of the whole crowd if we had a choice, not so quite up in the front, but that they're somewhere in the crowd. And when we feel encircled by our friends and our teachers and our benefactors and the people to whom we feel most grateful in our lives, it's more or less all right for us, for for those other folks to be in the crowd. And then part of that visualization was to recognize that each of us sitting here together has our own circle. And we each of us are sitting, even if we're sitting three feet from each other, in each of our worlds, we are the middle of our circle. And the world stretches out around each of us from us. And from the vantage point of those moments of awareness in which we know that it's not my life, but life happening, we're not the center of it. There are those moments where we recognize that life arising and passing away forever and ever eternally, there are no points of separation. From the, mo- from the point of our experience of our lives, we are the center of them. And so if you want to close your eyes and reestablish for a moment that whole center for you, 
We can't do it any other way, but feel, actually, here are close people, the people behind them and the people behind them. And we were, at the end of last evening, having spent that whole sitting period establishing our connection with peaceful and happy heart and how pleasant it was to dwell in that, acknowledging how pleasant it was to dwell in that, recognizing how much we enjoyed sending that wish for peaceful, happy, contented beingness to the folks all around us in our circle who we recognized. And then we imagined and brought into mind the idea that if everyone, any place in the whole circle of planet, if everyone were to sit down at the same time with us and recognize their circle around them and wish well to the people in their circle and through them to the people right behind them and the people right behind them and the people right behind them and the people distal to me who are kind of on the edge of my wishing well won't be distal to somebody else. They'll be near to somebody else. They'll be in the middle of their own world. And they'll be wishing well around them to the people near to them. And that in a certain way, while we can only act directly with the people who are near us in our lives, we can, through our actions, through the people near us, and through the way that they act, through the people near them, and they through them, and they through them, cause our actions to ripple through all the world. We could imagine that place in which the whole world sat down and wished well. And all the edges of the well-wishing would overlap. One of the things that we sometimes do on Thanksgiving, and I'd like for us to do now, is if we imagine and see in our mind's eye our circle, that in a minute, I'll take off my microphone so you don't hear me, we'll say something like, may all these beings be happy. And then each of us will announce out loud into the air, not very loud, but loud enough so that we hear it, and maybe loud enough so that some folks around us might hear it, the names of the people that we see in our circle. And I know that because I'm sitting next to people that I know and care about a lot, that they'll hear me say their names in my circle. I'll hear them say mine. Will each of us start in the middle of our circle? So most likely I'll start by saying my grandchildren from the youngest to the oldest, which is my habit. And then I'll say all my children and their people and my husband and my very dear friends and then other friends and other friends and other friends and teachers. And that's at the point where I'll start to hear my people next to me saying my name and I'll say their name. And then someone else will say some other name somewhere nearby. Someone will say, Donald or Max or Clark or someone that's not in my immediate circle of people. But then I'll think to myself, oh, I know a Donald as well. Not perhaps that Donald, but another Donald and a Max and a Clark. Because actually, and I could mention them as well. I 
forgot them, and then I'll hear someone else say a name. Say, well, I have a person by that name, and I can say that. And I recognize that my world is full of people, all of whom don't come up immediately by name recognition, but it doesn't matter. Somebody else's name reminds me of them. And by and by, even connects me to the people all over the whole globe whose names I don't know. So we help each other connect really to that place where we can wish most fervently that the peace that we wish so much for ourselves and the happiness that we want so much for ourselves be that for the people that we love and really close. So I need to take off my microphone, so sorry about that, so I don't overwhelm you with my list. So I'll say, may all beings be happy, and then we'll all take a great breath in, and then we'll say our list. When you run out of names, you can be quiet for a while, and then you can start again. Continuing doesn't mean you have to not stop in between. And then we'll say, may all beings be happy all together again. May all beings everywhere be happy. Of what already happened. I actually trust that every moment that we practice attention to the truth, dwelling peacefully in the present, connecting with our wish to be happy, discovering that it is the universal wish, connecting with the universal quality of suffering and responding with kindness and compassion, that that moment of practice is on behalf of all beings. I'd like to invite you, if your eyes aren't open, to open them. And uh, in a moment when we go down to eat, we'll eat in our usual way of looking at the food and appreciating it. But just for a minute, especially because it's Thanksgiving, I'd like to invite you to look at each other for a minute. Just look around and look at each other. You don't have to look meaningful or intensely, but just look. These are all the folks that are holding you up in your endeavor. These are the folks who at this point uh, are the meaning of I take refuge in the Sangha. In a minute, We'll go down to eat. Here are instructions for how to go down. First, I see it's raining, so we'll go down walking briskly. When everyone comes into the dining room, they may file past the serving table in order to... uh, 
feast their eyes. This is a note from Beth to all of you. She's inviting you to feast your eyes on the offerings. Then you are welcome to sit at any table, but please to be sure to leave one place empty at each table. And those folks who are part of the cleanup and usually go to the front of the line, please sit at the table in the front of the dining hall near the refrigerator. That probably means that that table will serve themselves the food first, so everybody knows what that table is. And what we'll do is we'll go down to the dining room, we'll all go into the dining room, we'll find our place at one of those chairs, and uh, we'll all wait and have a blessing before we eat. Thank you.